The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study in this very controversial passage of John 10, 31 through 39. This is part two of this, so if you haven't listened to part one, stop this now. Well, if you're here, you can't, but if you're listening, stop it and go back and listen to part one, all right? And let me remind you before we begin here of the literary structure of verses 22 through 39 of chapter 10. This is built around two basic questions dealing with the identity of Yeshua. That's what this text is about, His identity. Verse 24 asks whether Yeshua is the Messiah. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And then in verses 25 through 30 contain Yeshua's response. He tells them he is the Christ. Then verse 33 raises the question of whether Yeshua makes himself out to be God. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, then verses 34 through 38 present Yeshua's answer or His response to this. See, they say, you make yourself out to be God, and He responds. Then in verses 40 through 42, it's kind of a wrap-up, and Lazarus just kind of sums up the argument here and uh, talks about the, the end of Yeshua's ministry. What you have to understand, these verses... In this text, 22 through 42, strongly Christological. It focuses on the deity of Yeshua. Please keep that in mind as we look at this text. All right, Yeshua concluded his discourse on the sheep shepherd analogy with the statement in verse 30 I and the Father are one. Now, four times in this text, Yeshua called God my Father thus making himself equal with God, just as he did in chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. And not only has he described the security of believers that they have in his hand in the same terms as those sheep have in his Father's hand, he also has come straight out and expressed without any ambiguity, amb- ambiguity or misconstrued it at all, he says, I and the Father are one. Notice the Jews' reaction to this. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now, he is claiming equality with God. And so the Jews view this as blasphemy. They pick up stones and they want to kill him. Now, the word picked here is uh, the word bastadzo in the Greek, and it means to carry stones. So, in other words, they went and they picked up. Now, they're not talking about the little rocks you find in your driveway or something like that. They picked up big rocks because they wanted to smash the life out of them. All right, They wanted to kill them. So they carried these stones over. They're preparing to kill them. Because He claims to be deity. So Yeshua answered them, Now, I've shown you guys a lot of good works. I mean, I've done a lot of things. Okay, There was a man who was lame from birth. 38 years he'd been laying by that pool lame. And I gave him... I healed him. The guy's up walking around. There's a man who was blind. I healed that man. 
So I did a lot of good works. Uh, which ones are you stoning me for? He is not denying that he claims to be God, but he's seeking to show his adversaries that the works give substance to his words. In other words, he claims to be God, but look what he's doing. You don't do that kind of stuff unless you are God. And Yeshua in this text is also seeking clarification here. In other words, he's saying to him, listen, guys, let's clarify this. Why exactly are you wanting to stone me? Why are you going to kill me? All right? And they say this, the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work, well, not because you did a lot of good things, it's not for those who want to stone you, we're going to stone you for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself to be God. See, they understood Yeshua is saying that he's equal with God. They interpret those words as blasphemy. From their perspective, he's a man, and he's claiming to be God. Now, the punishment for blasphemy under the Mosaic Covenant is death by stoning. Leviticus 24.16. Now, they're under Roman rule here, and they don't really have the opportunity to kill people. They're not allowed to do that. That's Rome's job, but occasionally a mob would form and they'd kill people. They did it to Stephen. They're going to do it to Yeshua. Now, here's the thing. If Yeshua here is not really claiming to be God, he could have easily corrected the Jews' misunderstanding here. Oh, wait a second, God. No, no, no. You got me all wrong here. You, you, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I'm equal with God. I'm not blaspheming. I'm not doing... No, he didn't do that at all. The fact is, he gave further proof to the Jews that he was God. They correctly understood his claim. He's claiming to be God. They think it's blasphemy, so they want to kill him. So the Jews say he's committed blasphemy, he's just a man, and then Yeshua responds with this. He answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Alright, now you got to get what's going on here. He is defending his deity. Alright, they say he's blasphemy, he wants to explain to them, no I'm not, I'm not blaspheming. In order to defend his deity... He says this. He quotes this. Now remember, the focus of this section is on the deity of Christ. He says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God. So whatever your interpretation is of this verse, it has to reinforce Yeshua's claim in John 10.30 and 38 that equates Himself with God. However you view this, it has to enforce that. He says, I said, it's written in your law. Now, some commentators make a big deal out of the word your here. Oh, your law. He's separating himself from the law, and he says the law is theirs, it's not his. Now, that's it's not happening at all. First of all, the word your is not in a lot of the manuscripts. It simply says, is it not written in the Scripture, in the law that I said you are God's? Now, the word law here is most often used of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of Moses. That's how it's normally used, but it's also used to refer to all of Scripture. We know that Yeshua here is quoting Psalm 82.6. There's no controversy, but everybody agrees with that. Alright? No question there. But He calls it the law. 
And so some people make a big deal of this and they, well, he says he's confused. Or what? No, listen, people, it's just a way to say the Scriptures. All right, we see the same idea in John 15, 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So again, he says, well, the word that's in the law, and then he quotes Psalm again. This is Psalm 69, 4. So the law means the Scriptures. Let me give you one more. Paul uses the same thing. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law it is written. Now you would think, well, that must be one of the first five books, right? The law. But then he says this, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Where's that at? Isaiah 28. So when he says the law, he's talking about the Scriptures. Is it not written in the Scriptures? I said you are God's. Now again, that's a quote from Psalm 82.6. Let me ask you something. Who is the I in this text in Psalm 82? I said. Who's the I? It's Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh is saying, you are God's. Now the big question here, who is He calling God's? And that's where the controversy comes in. That's the big issue. And let me tell you, this text is extremely important. And this text reinforces my view of divine plurality. You got to see that, all right? If you do a study on John 10:34 and on Psalm 82, you'll very quickly find out that the majority of commentators, scholars, and preachers do not believe in divine plurality. They don't believe in the divine council. They don't believe there are other gods. They see Psalm 82 as speaking to men who Yeshua calls God. Now remember, he's quoting this to defend his deity. Alright? Keep that in mind. The predominant view of Psalm 82 is that it's talking about Yahweh judging Israel's rulers, Israel's leaders. And as I said last week, that is supported by a lot of bad translations. They translate the word Elohim incorrectly as judges. King James does that. New American does it. Let me tell you this. There is absolutely no justification for translating Elohim as judges. None. And we saw in our last study that Elohim is never used of humans unless they are dead and in the spirit realm. Elohim is a place of residence locator. All Elohim live in the spirit world. There is never a time in Scripture where a man is called Elohim. Now, I've said over and over, I challenge you to prove me wrong on this. I have not gotten anybody to do it yet. And I'm asking that sincerely. If you think there's a place where Elohim... Because this is very important. When God uses the word Elohim in Scripture, He's not talking about men. And this helps us understand that Psalm 82 is not talking about men, it's talking about gods. He calls them Elohim. Now, despite the clear evidence throughout Scripture of divine plurality, and we looked at a lot of it last week, and the fact that Elohim is never used of men in Scripture, the majority of commentators, scholars, and preachers see Psalm 82 as referring to Yahweh's judgment on human beings. They just don't see divine plurality. They deny divine plurality. Let me show you a few of them. All right. And I, I looked at over 26 commentaries this week 
Not one of them agrees with me. There are people who do, but not one of these. I can't find a commentary on John that deals with this. And, and I think the problem is because I don't have one old enough. Really. If you go back far enough, okay. Dr. Thomas Constable writes this. The identity of the people whom God addressed as gods in Psalm 82 is debatable. Well, yeah, I guess. The most popular and probable view is that they were Israel's judges who were functioning as God's representative and so were in that sense little gods. So let me ask you something. If someone functions as a representative of God, does that make them God? I don't know how, but that's their argument. Well, they're functioning as a representative of God because they're a judge, so they must be gods. That's not a good argument. D.A. Carson writes this, Although this much is clear, uncertainty abounds as to the identity of those whom God has addressed in Psalm 82. The chief options are, number one, God is addressing Israel's judges who are corrupting justice in the courts of the land. He goes on to say, They are called gods because to exercise justice is fundamentally a divine prerogative. So, <laughs> if you exercise justice, you're a god. And look at his proof text, or I should say spoof text. Deuteronomy 1.17. Let me tell you something. When you read statements like this from people, and they give you a spoof text, look it up. Find out if it has anything to do with what they're talking about. Well, let's look at this text. In this text, Yahweh is talking to Israel's judges. We see that in verse 16. He calls them judges. And judges is from the Hebrew word shafat, which means to judge. And to the judges, Yahweh says this, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. For the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. So he says, the judgment is God's. So they say, see that? The judgment's God's, so they're being God's when they judge. And I'm like, I don't get that argument. It tells us that the judges are to judge for Elohim. But the judges are never called Elohim. They are men who are representing Elohim for the people. Let me say this again. Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible are judges appointed by Moses called Elohim. The Faith Life Study Bible says this, You are gods, a quotation of Psalm 82.6, which refers either to the divine counsel or human judges. So they're, they're giving us a fair billing here, at least they say it's one or the other, as God's representatives administering justice on earth. Hall Harris writes this, The psalm was understood in rabbinic circles as an attack on unjust judges. That is criminal. Because that is not true. Now let me say this. Okay, you read this rabbinic circles, they didn't they they thought this was human judges, all right? Really? What rabbis is he talking about? Rabbis did not believe this until the 10th century after Christ. So I just think that is criminal to throw that out there like that like you're I'm backing up what I say because the rabbis believe this. Well, they did in the 10th century, but who cares about them? John MacArthur writes this. 
Jesus says corrupt judges were called gods. <laughs> I think that's a stretch, an assumption, because he's assuming that, you know, Psalm 82 is talking about men. He says maybe sarcastically, maybe ironically, but the word was used for them because they received the word of God and they were the instruments of God and the agents of God. Again, so their assumption is if you're serving God, if you're doing something for God, you are a God. I just think that's a stretch because they're never called gods. But the, the one in the Psalm 82, they're called gods, not because they're serving God. They're called gods, guess what? Because they are gods. Now, gotquestions.org has this to say. Psalm 82.1 says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. It's clear from the next three verses that the word gods refers to magistrates, judges, and other people who hold positions of authority and rule. Really, it's clear from the psalm? How? Because these gods are judging, they automatically say, well, they must be judges, they must be human judges. As a proof text that Psalm 82 is talking about human judges, some offer these verses. 2 Chronicles 19, 4-7. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and he brought them back to the Yahweh the Elohim of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities. So Jehoshaphat's appointing judges. City by city, and he said to the judges, so here's the word to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for Yahweh. So they're going to judge for Yahweh. He, he is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of Yahweh be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with Yahweh our Elohim or partiality or taking a bribe. So judges in verse 6 is from the Hebrew shafat. Again, it means to judge. And judges are judging for Yahweh. In other words, when the people come to these judges, what they want to know is, what does the law say about this? Just like in our system. You know, lawyers and judges are supposed to know what the law says, and they go by the law. So they're coming to the judges, and they're saying, what does the law of God say? And they're telling him. They're judging not for man, but for Yahweh, because they're taking the Scriptures and say, here's what the Scriptures say. Again, the word Elohim is not used in these verses of judges. It's used of Yahweh, but it's never used of judges. Men are never in Scripture called Elohim. They're to judge for Elohim, but that doesn't make them an Elohim. These judges are rendering decisions for the nation Israel, not for the nations of the world, which is the case of Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32. Now, Michael Heiser, explaining one of these human views, now he's against this, but he's explaining what they believe, says this. Scholars will say, we know that Jesus is quoting Psalm 82.6. Like I said, everybody agrees with that. And that technically isn't in the law of Moses. That's true. It's not in the Pentateuch, the first five books. The Torah, he says. So when Yeshua says, is it not written in your law, even though he's quoting Psalm 82.6, Yeshua is probably connecting that thought with something in the Torah. And then they say that's something in the Torah is Exodus 18. All right, 
you got to get the ignorance of this, okay? Even though he's quoting, so Yeshua's quoting Psalm 826, we know that. But he says it's law, so maybe he's referring to something in the Torah. He doesn't tell us anything about it, doesn't give us any hints in that direction, but maybe he just jumps there. Well, let's look at Exodus 18 just for fun and see their argument makes no sense at all. All right, again, you have to make some big assumptions to get here. Exodus 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that Elohim had done for Moses and for Israel, for his people. Now Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. He, they, Jethro's hearing all these good reports. Now watch uh, verse 11. Jethro speaking, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all Elohim, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. So Jethro is saying, Yahweh, He's greater than all Elohim. Is He saying that Yahweh is greater than all human judges? That's kind of obvious, isn't it? He's saying that Yahweh is greater than all other Elohim, all other spirit beings. That would make me think there are other Elohim. You can't be greater than something that doesn't exist. Or I guess you automatically are greater than something that doesn't exist. Let's go on in the text. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. So this is a, a process that's going on. And Jethro's watching, and he's scratching his head saying, this doesn't make sense. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? They're coming to Moses to find out what does God say about this. They got a dispute with their neighbor. Come on, let's go to Moses. Let's find out what the law says. They don't don't pull out their pocket Old Testament, okay? Because they don't have it, all right? Moses hadn't even penned this yet. So the law's been given, though, so they go to Moses to find out what it is. And Moses said to his father in law, (coughs) because the people come to me to inquire of God. They want to know what the Word of God says. That's what they mean by inquire of God. It's not like Moses says, Hey, God, this guy wants to know this. He's got the Word of God. They're inquiring of what God said. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. See, he's explaining, here's what the law says about that. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. It wasn't good for him to tell him the law? No, he just said, you're just taking too much on yourself. He says, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. I guess all day long, Moses is sitting there dealing with this stuff. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their case to God. Now, remember this. You shall represent the people before God. That's what Moses is doing, and that's what Jethro says. You're going to do this, but watch. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. So he says, Moses, divide this up a little bit. Give people, and you can take a little bit of a break here. Let the important stuff come to you. He says, every great matter shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. He says, just make it a lot easier. Let's spread this out a little. All right? 
So verse 24 says, So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds and fifties, and tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard cases they brought to Moses, but any small matters they decided themselves. So what we have happening in Exodus 18 is Moses appoints judges who later really become identified as the Jewish elders. They're judging the people. Now, (laughs) and looking at these verses, I hope that you're thinking this. What in the world does this have to do with Psalm 82? What does it have to do with Psalm 82? I have no idea. Because there's nothing in Psalm 82 about Exodus 18. But here is how their argument goes, okay? Heiser's going to explain their argument, which is, it'll blow your mind, but it's built on this one verse. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. So Heiser explains it this way. He says, so the logic here is that when Moses said earlier in the chapter that the people come to ask questions of God and they're really asking me and I give them answers, the logic is when Moses appoints these people, these elders to judge the people, then that basically means that when they come to those judges, they're coming to Elohim as well. See, so they're coming to the judges to get Elohim's, but again, they're coming to find out what does he teach, what does the law say. So yeah, they're coming to Elohim, they want to find out what, what does God say about this. So the judges are sort of viewed as Elohim. And again, because you do a work of Elohim, justice, righteousness, that doesn't make you God, all right? And then we take that back to Psalm 82, and we say the Elohim in Psalm 82, those are just people, the Israelite judges, from way back in Exodus 18. Now, Heiser says this, now if you're thinking, what a convoluted, strange hermeneutic, I agree with you. It just makes no sense at all. But they're trying to do away with this idea of these gods are actually gods, so they want to make them men, so they've got to turn them into judges. The human judges that are appointed in Exodus 18, let me say this again, are never called Elohim here or anywhere else. Nowhere in Scripture are human judges called Elohim. Now, a similar view along this line is the idea that gods here doesn't refer to Israel's judges, but it refers to all of Israel. Because the commentators will say, well, the text here says to whom the word of God came, and obviously that's a reference to the giving of the law at Sinai. Because the word of God came to them, the Israelites, at Sinai. Therefore, the gods are the Israelites. In other words, all Israelites are gods. But again, what does Psalm 82 have to do with Sinai? There's nothing in the psalm that points to the gathering at Sinai. So this human view that says, gods of Psalm 82 are Israelites or Israelite judges, this is the predominant view today. Like I said, I got 25 commentaries on John. Every one of them say that. Most people go with the judge's view. All right? But, okay, so that's what people today believe, right? Now hang on to this. To a second temple Hebrew, living in Yeshua's day, they would have believed in divine plurality. And they would have looked at Psalm 82 as talking about gods, not men. In other words, Yeshua's audience 
When they looked at Psalm 82, they didn't think like we think today. They would have thought, those are gods. Let me give you another quote from Heiser that is very important. I've used this quote before because it's so important. Heiser has a PhD in ancient Semitic languages. So this is kind of his field. All right, he says this. 99% of Second Temple Judaism believed that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not just an extension and is in large part not even linked to what happened with Adam and Eve, but the reason that people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of what the watchers did. Now, he says Second Temple Judaism believed. What he is talking about there is the writings of Second Temple literature. All right, this is what the literature says, so this is what they believe. And the literature says that the reason men are evil is because of what the watchers did. Now, obviously, if they believe it's what the watchers did, they believe that these watchers were gods. All right, they're taking this back to Genesis 6. The sons of God, the watchers came down, they married the daughters of men, they had this hybrid offspring. That's what these people believed. So they believed that there were other gods. 99% of the literature taught that. Heiser goes on, everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references and intertestamental literature, everything says that the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers, everything. In other words... If you search for all the literature of intertestamental period, you look at all the literature, you will find four references that the sin of mankind is connected with Genesis 3. Everything else in the literature connects it to Genesis 6. Okay? Now, the reason I'm stressing that is because this is what the people believe. This is what Yeshua's audience understood. So Second Temple Judaism, catch this, please catch this. Second Temple Judaism is the context of the Bible. Okay, we talk about context. Context is so important. You can't just take a verse and say, this verse says this. What's the context say? That context is the chapter, that context is the book, and that context is Second Temple Judaism. Because that's what the Bible comes out of. It's written there. And they believed in divine plurality. They believe that these other gods, the watchers, were the reason that men were so wicked. Second Temple literature is filled with divine plurality. Second Temple literature, often called pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha, you've heard of that term, refers to the books written by the Jews between Malachi and Yeshua, intertestamental. Between the Old and the New, this literature is written. And, you know, the sad thing today most Christians have never heard of pseudepigrapha. They've never even heard of it. And ones who have heard of it are like, oh, don't do that. Don't go there. Let's just stick with the Bible. You know, they're like, don't, don't look at that. That's bad stuff. Let's just stick with the Bible. The Bible's the Word of God. And I agree. And I don't think the pseudepigrapha is the Word of God. But here's what I know. The context of the Bible is the pseudepigrapha. So we have to understand the context of Scripture. And because we don't, we have views today that nobody ever held before. Because we're just making things up as we go along instead of going back into the context of the Bible. Let me read a passage to you from the Lexham Bible Dictionary on the importance of pseudepigrapha. 
Although they are called Old Testament pseudepigrapha, these texts are important for New Testament scholarship as well. Because the books of the New Testament were not written in isolation from the history, literature, and culture of the time. Do you understand that? When the writers wrote, they had a, a, a situation they were in. They had a background. They had a paradigm they believed in. It was this literature that they all were familiar with. And so the writers used this. And he says, in fact, New Testament authors were familiar with portions of this literature. For example, the epistle of Jude contains references to two writings from the Pseudepigrapha. First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. Jude quotes these books. And Christians say, oh, we don't want to look at... Jude quotes them. We need to find out why does he quote these. What does Jude believe? He says, 2 Peter, which was written after Jude and borrows mainly elements from Jude, alludes to the pseudepigrapha, but without explicit reference. This relates directly to issue in canon development and hermeneutics, offering a glimpse into the New Testament world's use of sources outside of Scripture. And what we have got to understand is that Lazarus' audience, when he's writing this book, did not see Psalm 82 as talking about human judges. That wasn't a view they held to. They all believed in divine plurality. As a matter of fact, most Christians, most Christian authors, most Christian scholars held to this view up until the 4th century. And then Augustine of Hippo came up with a new idea. And then slowly Augustine's view just got adopted until today the whole church believes in its predominant view. It's funny because they don't believe everything Augustine taught. I mean, I wish they'd jump in the whole ball of wax there and believe in divine sovereignty and the election and all this stuff that Augustine taught. But they do grab this and they go that direction. But nobody until Augustine taught that. Second Temple, non-canonical Jewish texts illustrate the ancient tradition of understanding this interpretation of gods of the nations as real spirit beings that rule over the nations. Look at Jubilees. 1531, don't look in your Bible, it's not there, it's pseudepigrapha, okay? <laughs> and I want you to spend a lot of time trying to find this, alright? There are many nations and many people, and they all belong to Him, speaking of God, but over all of them, He caused spirits to rule. Yahweh caused spirits to rule over these. This is Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, alright? So that they might lead them astray from following Him. But over Israel, he did not cause any angel or spirit to rule because he alone is their ruler and he will protect them. Now, when you read that, what you ought to be thinking of over and over in the Bible, it says, I am Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. What do you mean? What about all these other nations? No, they have their own gods. I put spirits to rule over them. I'm the God of Israel. Second Temple Literature, 11Q Melchizedek. We talked about it last time. All right, The Dead Sea Scrolls. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot of views started changing that people held. Because these de- these, they, in- they gave us new information. All right, One of the scrolls that was recovered, it's called 11Q because it's found in Cave 11. All right, 11Q Melchizedek. And uh, this one I want to quote from is uh, a translated from Garcia Mar- Martinez. And it's in the book, the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition. And it says this, It is the time for the year of grace of Melchizedek. 
And I told you this last week, but when they're talking about Melchizedek, they're talking about Christ. All right, if you go to Hebrews, you can figure all that out, okay? Melchizedek, to them, they're referring to Christ. All right, so they refer him to being Christ, all right? And they say, uh, and of his armies, the nation of the holy ones of God. So they're talking about Christ and his army of holy ones, of the rule of judgment. And he says, oh, this is written about him in the Song of David who said in Psalms 82.1, Elohim will stand in the assembly of God in the midst of the gods He judges. So, Christ here, Melchizedek, is standing in the assembly of the God in the midst of the gods He's judging. No Israelite would have been thinking of Psalm 82 referring to human judges or referring to Israelites. They would just not have seen that. That wasn't in their paradigm. Now, an argument that is often raised against the view of divine plurality are verses like this. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. So, isn't that saying that there's no other gods? There's just Yahweh and that's it? What about Isaiah 45.5? I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So people say, look, he says there's no other gods. Well, (laughs) I am Yahweh and there is no other is an ancient biblical slogan of incomparability of sovereignty, not exclusivity of existence. He's not saying there's none that exists. He's saying there's none like me. I'm over all of them. It's a way of saying that this certain authority was the most powerful compared to all other authorities. In other words, I'm so powerful and the other ones don't even exist. It didn't mean there weren't other authorities. We see this same exact phrase used in Isaiah 47.8 of Babylon. The city Babylon. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. Were there no other cities? I think there were. Okay? But the ruling power, Babylon, is proudly proclaiming, I am, I'm the greatest. The power of Babylon is not saying there's no other cities besides her. There's no other powers like me. No, it's saying, I am the greatest. I'm the greatest power. And Yahweh uses that phrase, I'm Yahweh and there's no other, not to deny the existence of other gods, but to express His absolute sovereignty over them. Yahweh is God of gods and Lord of lords. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 17. For Yahweh, your God. He's talking to Israel. Okay, Israel, your God, Yahweh, is the God of gods and Lord of lords. And I love the way the ESV here capitalizes God referring to Yahweh and doesn't capitalize it when referring to the other gods. Alright? He's God of gods. He's a God over all gods. Now, Okay, notice Yeshua's argument here. All right? He quotes Psalm 82 6 and he says, Haven't I said, You are gods? And then he said, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You're blaspheming because I said, I'm the Son of God? All right, he called them gods. Now listen, this is what I said earlier about the commentators say, um, 
the Word of God came. They say, well, the Word of God came to Israel. Well, yeah, but the Word of God came to a lot of other people. This is talking about the psalm. In the psalm, God says to the gods, so the Word of God is coming to these gods, and He says, I'm going to judge you. He's talking to the gods who are ruling corruptly. He's reminding His Jewish opponents that the Scripture, their own law, actually teaches the idea there are other divine beings that are called God. He said, listen, <coughs> I say I'm God and you guys go crazy. But let me tell you what your Scriptures say. In Psalm 82.6, Yahweh called these people gods. And if He called them gods, and He did, to whom the Word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, why do you say of me, the one consecrated by the Father, that I'm blaspheming because I say it? You know the Word of God says that. He's reminding them of what their Scriptures teach. There are other gods. They are spirit beings. He's affirming, listen, Yeshua is affirming the divine view of Psalm 82. Very important. He says the Scripture can't be broken. This simply means it can't be made invalid. It can't be subverted. The word for broken here is luo in the Greek. And luo means dismissed, dissolved, removed, released. Scripture can't be changed. You guys know what your Scripture says. Yahweh called these people gods. You know that. So do you say of Him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? Now, let me ask you here, people, and please think with me here. Is Yeshua saying here, it's okay if I call myself God? Because Yahweh calls other men gods. You see what that did? He just denied His deity. They're claiming, they're accusing Him of saying He's God. Right? That's the whole argument. We're going to kill you because you say you're gods. And so, people have Him basically saying here, well, yeah, I call myself gods, but you called your rulers gods and they're just men, so it's okay if I call myself God. (laughs) How does this support His claim to deity? Is Yeshua backing away from the idea of His deity here? Is He saying, well, you guys are about to kill me, so let me back up a little bit. You called other men gods. It's okay if I call myself God. No, He's not backing away from the claim at all, as we'll see in verse 38. He's hammering it even stronger. He's going to say, the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. Now, John MacArthur writes, the passage itself in Psalm 82 has no connection to His deity. That has everything to do with His deity. That's the whole point of the argument. But he uses that word gods there to make a point from the lesser to the greater as very often rabbis did and he did. Listen, (laughs) when someone says the rabbis believe something, they're probably right because the rabbis had views just like everybody else. Multiple views. But when they say that, you know, you need a reference, okay? So you know that the rabbis did say that or otherwise it's just a way to kind of strengthen your argument. Listen, Rabbi said what I believe, so you better believe it. All right? Those who hold to the human view say that Yahweh's argument is this if corrupt leaders in Israel who were mere mortals can be given the title gods in Scripture when they serve in their duties as God's representative, how can they bring charges of blasphemy against Yeshua? When in his position as consecrated envoy of Yahweh, he calls himself God. It makes no sense. It destroys the total argument. Listen, they claim that Yeshua, and many commentators say this, Yeshua is using an a fortiori argument. 
argument from lesser to the greater. And they, they're saying this, if mere men, Israel's judges, can be called gods because of their position as judges, then how much more should I, whom the Father has sanctified and sent of the world, be called the Son of God? Now that's not a very convincing argument if that were the Lord's argument because He's trying to claim His deity. He's trying to support His deity, not say He's a man. And that argument destroys that whole thing and, and God has Yeshua just saying, hey guys, I'm a, God, I'm a man. Just like these other men, you called these men gods, what's wrong with me calling myself God? The word consecrated here is an interesting choice of words considering the feast that these people were celebrating. This is the Feast of Dedication, verse 22. They're celebrating the rededication of the temple. And the word consecrated here means to set apart as holy. Yeshua, the Son of God, is set apart. He's set apart by God the Father to concentrate the world to the truth. This is a feast that celebrates the consecration of the second temple. And Yeshua is basically saying, I am the new temple. The body of Christ is now the temple. Now, if the gods in Psalm 82 were merely human judges and not divine beings, then Yeshua's appeal to this text to defend His claim to deity makes no sense at all. They certainly wouldn't seek to stone him as a blasphemer if he's saying, no, no, I'm just like those other judges. Oh, so you're, not, you're just saying because you're working in a position for God, then you're going to be called God. Okay, we get it. We, you're not call, called yourself God. But they didn't, he didn't say that at all. Yeshua seemed to be rebuking the Jews here for allowing the existence of Elohim other than the Father. Remember, they held the divine view of plurality in Psalm 82. So he rebukes them for holding that view, but they would not accept his claim to be Elohim. In other words, they believe in other Elohim, but you're not one of them. We just can't accept it, even though all that he's done. So he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Okay, in other words, if you didn't see me raising the dead, if you didn't see me giving sight to the blind, if you didn't see me healing the lame, then don't believe it, you know. But if I do them, and you see me do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Believe what you're seeing, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now the works of Yeshua, the purpose of these works are to authenticate His mission in the eyes of the people that He's a man come from God. Only God can heal men. Only God gives men sight who are blind. Heals the lame. So believe these works. And then he says this. The Father's in me and I'm in the Father. This has a specific Old Covenant antecedent. And that's Exodus 23. Alright, listen to what Yeshua is saying. And listen, we read this today and we're not really getting it, but trust me, His audience understood exactly what He was saying here. He's saying the Father is in me They understood the Father to be Yahweh. I am in the Father. We'll look at Exodus 23. Behold, Yahweh is talking to Israel. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And he tells Israel, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. You better listen to this angel. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. So this angel is pardoning their sins. Who does that besides God? Now watch what he says. 
My name is in him. Talking about the angel, he says, you better listen to this angel. Why? Because my name is in this angel. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean the four letters, the yod heh vav heh are in the angel? Wears them on him somewhere or something? The Hebrew word for name here is Shem, which comes from Neshema, which we see in Genesis 2.7. Then Yahweh Elohim formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the Neshema of life, and the man became a living creature. The word breath here is Neshema. Your Shem is your breath. In Hebraic thought, your breath refers to your character. It's what makes you, you. It's the very life of you. Your breath, your life. It makes you different from everybody else. You can replace the name, the word name in the Hebrew Bible with character. So when he says, my name is in him, he's saying, my character is in this angel. See, in Hebraic thought, a name is not merely an arbitrary designation of a random combination of sounds. Bob. What does Bob mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just Bob. It's a name. Todd, Jeff, they're just names. They don't have meaning. Hebraic names had meaning. The name conveys the nature, the essence of a thing named. It represents the history and reputation of the being named. In English, we often refer to a person's reputation as their good name. Right? Well, the Hebrew concept of a name is very similar to that idea. So in Exodus 23.21, when Yahweh says to the angel, my name is in him, he's saying, my character, my essence is in this angel. The essence of God is in this angel? Watch what the scriptures say in Leviticus 11.45. For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. So who brought Israel out of Egypt? Yahweh, right? That's what the text says. What about this verse, Judges 2.1? Now the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. Okay, so who brought Israel from Egypt? Was it Yahweh or was it the angel of Yahweh? Yes. That's the right answer. Yes. Well, the scripture says both of them. Now, let me throw another thing in the mix here. Notice what Jude says. Jude tells us who brought Israel out of Egypt. And it's not the angel or Yahweh. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So here it's Jesus who brought them up. Now, the New American Standard here says the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. So who saved the people out of Egypt and then destroyed them? We just saw that it was Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh. Well, now he's saying it's Jesus. The New English translation note states this. The reading, Jesus, Jesus, is deemed too hard by several scholars, since it involves the notion of Jesus acting in the early history of the nation Israel. They say, well, they can't mean Jesus because that means he'd have to be, he was, he's the angel of Yahweh, people. The Jews understood the idea of a second Yahweh in Scripture. They were familiar with the Scriptures and they knew the angel of Yahweh was another Yahweh figure. 
They're familiar with this. They got no problem with this. But the scholars, well, that's too hard. However, not only does this reading enjoy the strongest support from a variety of early witnesses, but the plethora of variations demonstrate that scribes were uncomfortable with it. So if the scribes are uncomfortable with the reading, what do they do? Change it. I don't like that. Let me put this word in instead. That makes me feel more comfortable. For they seem to exchange kurios, which means Lord, or theos, which means God, for Jesus. Then he says, though P72 has intriguing reading, theos Christos, God Christ. You know what P72 is? It's a manuscript. The manuscripts have different, you know, numbers. We have different manuscripts. P72 is considered an authoritative manuscript, and it has this reading in it. It has Theos Christos. As difficult as the reading Jesus is, in light of Jude 1.4, and in light of the progress of Revelation, Jude being one of the last books in the New Testament to be composed, it is wholly appropriate. Okay? So, who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, Yahweh did it. The angel of Yahweh did it. Who is? Yeshua. So people say, well, was it Yahweh or was it the angel? Yes. Listen, here's what you have to understand. The Father is in this angel. God is in this angel. This is how the Tanakh says the angel is God in human form. In visible form. This is God. Now, if we take this back to John 10, where Yeshua says, I and the Father are one, and the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, Yeshua is telling them, I am Yahweh in human form. You think He's backing away from His claim to deity? Not at all. He's saying that with their Scriptures, they, when He says, I am in the Father, the Father's in me, they're like, ah! Oh! He's claiming to be the angel of Yahweh, the second Yahweh of Scripture. I'm not only an Elohim, Yeshua says. I'm not only a spirit being. I'm also Yahweh, the Lord of the Council. The Father is the Lord of the Council, and the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father. They understood what He was saying. They understood it so clearly that again, they sought to arrest Him but he escaped from their hand. So, you know, he's not backing away from deity, people. He's emphasizing it. Now, let me ask you this. How does the human view explain the reaction of the Jewish audience here? They're trying to arrest him on the heels of picking up stones to kill him in 1030. If Yeshua is citing a text that all of them could just as well cite on their own behalf, we're all sons of God. That's okay, we're all Elohim. Why would they get such a response? Why did he get such a response? Why did they want to kill him if they thought he's claiming to be a man? They knew he was saying he's a God. And for that, they wanted him dead. Now this closing section serves to show how completely Yeshua is in control of his own destiny. They want to kill him, but he escapes out of their hands. He's soon going to go back to Jerusalem to die, but he does it in his own timing. Okay, he's not going to be a victim. All right, this is all planned out. Verse 40 He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist, John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. 
So he goes across the Jordan to Perea. The ruling class in Jerusalem from whom he was facing the danger lacked authority in Perea. So he goes away. You're trying to kill me. Let me get out of here. Let me go back over here. Yeshua's ministry is drawn to a close here, people. It's December. In March, he's going to make his way back to Jerusalem where he's going to die. Therefore, he returns to the site where his ministry began on the east side or the far side of the Jordan River where he was baptized by John. And many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. In other words, the Jews believed in John the Baptist. They believed he was a true prophet, but he didn't do any signs. Even though he performed no miraculous works, they believed him, yet the Jews in Jerusalem wouldn't believe Yeshua through all the miracles that he did. I think the reference to John the Baptist here is an inclusio. All right, It brackets the record of Yeshua's public ministry. It starts in 119, ends in four, or 1042. This is his public ministry. John the Baptist begins it, he ends it. So that's what I think they, they bring up John the Baptist here, just as an inclusio. Now the public ministry of Yeshua closes with these words. Many believed in him there. They wanted to kill him in Jerusalem. But in Perea, many believed in him. Now let me ask you, why did those in Perea believe when those in Jerusalem wouldn't? You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. You're not my sheep. See, my sheep believe, and that's what he says. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. So why didn't they believe? They weren't a sheep. So they rejected him. Listen, these people here believe because Yahweh had called them. He had given them as a gift to His Son. They were called and they came. All that the Father gives me, Yeshua said, will come to me. And all who come to Him believe in Him and are given eternal life. People, this text is all about the deity of Christ. And to interpret Psalm 82 as talking about men is to destroy Yeshua's argument and have Him saying He's just a man. And that is blasphemy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this text. Lord, I know it's a difficult text. We've tried to wade through it the best we know how. I pray, Father, that You'd give us the spirit of Bereans, Lord, that we would not accept what we hear, we wouldn't reject what we hear, but we would study it out to see if these things are so. Father, I thank You for this text and just the glorious teaching on the deity of Christ. The fact that He and the Father are one, that He is in the Father, the Father is in Him. Help us, Lord, to understand what He is saying. Yeshua is Yahweh in human form. Thank You, Lord for your grace to us. May we understand this text, Lord, in the depths that we may understand who you are and who you claim to be. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm.